Good morning. My name is Will Cody, and I am the campus minister at Austin Peay State University for our denomination, the PCA. We are in the book of Judges this morning. If you want to turn there to page 202, if you have a church Bible in front of you. We've been reading the introductory. We're going through a, this series on the book of Judges. We're going through the whole book, and we are just coming out of the introduction. Here's a quick summary of the introduction. God's brought his people, Israel, into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And he intends for this nation to trust him and serve him and be a blessing to this evil world that they live in. But instead, they decide en masse that they are not going to trust him. They're actually going to serve other gods. And they're going to be just like, if not worse, than the evil world that they live in. And God lets them have their way. And he lets them fall prey to the surrounding nations and live in misery until they cry out for help to him. And as the introduction that we've been reading the last couple times we've been in Judges explains, this happens again and again. And each time, God sends a deliverer, a savior, a judge. And we mentioned this last time, but when, we think of, when you think of a biblical judge, as we're going to be talking about these judges, it's not like a judge in a courtroom that's declaring with a gavel in their hand what justice is. Instead, think more like a warrior, exacting justice with a sword in their hand or an ox goad or a jawbone in their hand. So I said last time, think less Judge Judy or less Judge Wapner if you're of an older generation uh, and think more Judge Dredd when you think about these judges. So our text today is going to tell the story of these first three judges of Israel. We're just gonna read verses seven through 11 and they're gonna read the rest of the text later because it's kind of a long text and it fits better. So page 202 in these blue Bibles. And this is God's word. So we're starting at verse seven. This is the first judge mentioned, Othniel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kinaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we read this text, this historical narrative that you've given us that speaks to your faithfulness and your love. Help open our eyes that we may be changed as we see and hear these stories. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I ran across this headline on Thursday. The headline was, my boyfriend's cancer battle was ruining my mental health, so I left him. Now I'm running a marathon in his honor. So, so there's this woman, her name was Danielle Epstein, and she was buying a house together with her boyfriend, whose name is Jell Fresen. I think it's a Dutch name. And he, they were buying a house together, and he was diagnosed with a rare form of brain cancer. So he had to undergo 17-hour operation on his brain that left him having to learn how to walk again. His face remained half-paralyzed afterwards. 
and he needed weeks and weeks more of radiation therapy for this cancer that was in his brain. And Danielle couldn't take it. And she said in an interview, and why is she doing interviews? I would be ashamed. But she, she said, uh, I was having panic attacks and was on so much medication to sort myself out, I just couldn't function. So realizing that they had to split up, she moved all the way, she moved to Thailand, the other side of the world, and that's where she started running with her father, and she started running, um, training for this marathon in her ex-boyfriend's honor that she had abandoned. <laughs> now, I'm not throwing any blame out here on, on anyone. Uh, they weren't like officially married. She hadn't made any vows. Uh, they were kind of functionally married, it sounded like. But here's one question I was left with, especially after reading the comment section underneath the story. Going forward, the whole world knows about this. Who would ever date this woman ever again? <laughs> Much less commit to marry this woman. Who would ever commit themselves to someone like this? Because I would be out. You could not trust this person. You know they have a breaking point where they're going to abandon you. And you just know you're setting yourself up for the most vulnerable time of your life when you absolutely need someone, them running away to the other side of the world, away from you. No one, like, and even as a friendship, like romantically or fr deep friendship-wise, why would, why would you ever be vulnerable with a person like this? You'd have to be a fool, especially when you've known that they've done this before. I would be all out on a person like this. Well, our text is not about a woman. It is about a people. It is about a people that abandon the Lord who has committed himself to them. But this God doesn't do what I would do. He doesn't do what the people in the comment section of that article would have done, what they were talking about. And they don't just abandon him once. They abandon him over and over and over and over and over and over again. Let's see how God responds to people like that in our text. The big idea of this text, here's our three points. The big idea of this text is that we should trust our covenant-keeping Lord. We should trust him because, three points, his commitment is relentless. His grace is undeserved and his rescue is assured. These are gonna be our three points guiding as we read through this crazy text, all right? So let's look at our first point. God's, we can trust him, we can trust ourselves to him because his commitment is relentless. Look with me in verse seven, we just read it. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, as the introduction to Judges explains, this is the first time that this, is going, that this happens in this text, and it happened a lot more. But the cycle continues over and over and over again. The people forget the Lord, and they turn to idols, to these local balls, these local gods, the Baals and the Asheroth. So God lets them go to these idols as these idols are destroying them, and the people of these idols uh, enslave them because they're out of God's protective care. They've run away from God's protective care. And so this guy, Kushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, takes advantage of this, of this situation and he subjugates Israel. And now they serve Kushan Rishathayim. And for eight years, they serve this local lord, this local king. Is that me? No. I don't think so. But then they cry out to the Lord. They're in the midst of being, for eight years, they're subjugated and they cry out to the Lord. Now, when it says it cry out to the Lord in verse nine, there we go. The people cry out to the Lord. Several commentators mention this. 
This is not like, I'm sorry, God, kind of cry. This is not a, I'll serve you if you help me kind of cry. This is not a confession of sin kind of cry. This was just a cry of groaning and misery. It was just a cry for rescue, for help. It was just a cry, I'm in misery, help me. And the Israelites, all throughout this book, they cry for rescue again and again. They call on God to come and save them from the consequences of what they've done and from their enemies and all their misery. And over time, through all these cycles, it gets worse and worse and worse and more, more severe, their misery. It says here that they served Kushan, Rishathayim, and it says that they just, they served him. So that means that he was, they were subjugated to him. Um, so that meant they probably had to give him like a large percentage of their crops or something. But it gets worse and worse. In later chapters, so Israel goes back later. Israel goes back and worships these idols even harder. And then in chapter 4, uh, the king of Canaan, he oppressed the people of Israel, it says, cruelly. And then after that, they go and they serve the idols even harder. And then in chapter 6, the Midianites, it says that they laid waste to the land of Israel. And the Israelites had to go live in caves. That's how bad it got. And then in chapter 10, after they served God, these idols even harder, in chapter 10, the, the Ammonites, it says that they crushed and they oppressed the Israelites. Now, what is surprising here is that God is not saving them because of their repentance. He's not saving them because they're, of their good works. He's not saving them because they did a confession of sin. They didn't. His compassion wells up when he hears that they are in misery, when he hears their cries, his compassion wells up inside him and he, it's almost like he can't help himself he's saving them because of his relentless commitment and compassion for his people it is a commitment that transcends their 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 repentance it comes before they respond it comes before they do anything but cry out for help and what's crazy and this is really crazy when you get to this, the last judge in this book samson when it gets to this point they don't even ask for rescue anymore they're just used to being ravaged by the Philistines. For 40 years, it's the longest span of servitude in all of this book. And at the end of it, they're not even asking for help anymore. And then God sends a deliverer anyway. And you know what they do with Samson? They try to kill him. <laughs> and even after all of these abandonments and rejections, their God is still relentlessly committed to his people. And he's hopelessly committed to you. This is the tension that runs through the whole book of Judges. It runs through the whole of the Old Testament, actually. God tells the people back in chapter 2, he tells them, I think I have a lunch slide for this. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, but you have not obeyed my voice. He's saying, I will never break my relationship with you. My commitment with you, ever. But you have not obeyed me. You have not kept your commitment to me. And one of the key questions that you've got to ask, it's got to come up if you're reading with paying any attention, is God is saying that he's committed to his people and to their flourishing as they trust in him. But the only thing they seem to be committed to is their own destruction. And the question is, at the end of the day, at their worst, will God remain faithful to, their, to this people? Is there anything that they can do to change his mind and change his commitment? Because it's going to get really bad in the book of Judges. But this chapter, where we just read, the first taste of it, this is the preview of the answer of his level of commitment. 
Verse 9 says, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord answered. He raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel. Just in response to his people's cry of misery and suffering, God sends his spirit on this guy, Othniel. And through Othniel, God saves the people of Israel from Cushan and serving this terrible Lord. Question, do you believe when you think about God's relationship with you, do you know, do you believe that he is committed to you like this? If this is the kind of commitment that we're only getting a little taste of right now in this chapter, we're gonna see more of it, that God has for his people, what is it that you think you could do to spoil his relentless commitment to you? It's all based on him. There's nothing you can do. You can always cry to him. He is committed to you. Even if it's all your fault, like it was for the Israelites. You can always cry to him. Paul puts it this way. His commitment to you is this, is this hard, is this relentless. Neither, he says, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate you. Nothing can get, make him give up his commitment to us, his people. God is relentlessly committed to his people. He's relentlessly committed to you. So you can trust him. You can entrust yourself to him. But there's more. We should trust him because he's relentlessly committed to you. We can also trust him because he is, his grace is undeserved. So look with me at verse 12. So Othniel, he dies. There's 40 years of peace with Othniel. And then verse 12, which we haven't read yet. So we're re getting into the part we haven't read. Verse 12, the people of Israel again, right off the bat, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 14, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. What does he do? We know he's gonna do, right? He's gonna raise up a deliverer for them, Ahab. So right off the bat, God has shown to be relentlessly committed. This is the second time in this short chapter, this chapter we read, where they turned away from him and he's been committed to them. But we also start to see what does this commitment look like? And what does it entail, this relentless commitment that we've been talking about? Now, when we say grace here, um, his, uh, his undeserved grace, grace means the gift of the unmerited, undeserved, even unasked for, unsought out favor and love of God. That's what we say when we mean grace. It is, by definition, undeserved. You say undeserved grace, which is my point. Undeserved grace that is a um, redundant, that is a redundant phrase because they both, grace is undeserved. So you don't say undeserved grace, right? It's a gift without any obligation. It's a gift that I didn't do anything to deserve or merit. So in the Old Testament, the parallel for this is the, is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed means steadfast love. It's the Old Testament, hesed and charis, which is grace. These are the two Old Testament, New Testament words that basically mean the same thing. It means that the commitment of God's favor and love toward his people is going to be no matter what. So God's commitment is to bless his people 
with himself, even as they run from him to their own destruction. And he's going to relentlessly follow them with grace. Tim Keller puts it this way when he's describing grace in the book of Judges. I love, I don't have a slide for this, but it's pretty short. He says, God relentlessly offers his grace in Judges and now. God relentlessly offers his grace to people who do not deserve it, who do not seek it, and never appreciate it once they've been saved by it. God relentlessly offers his grace to people who do not deserve it, do not seek it, and never appreciate it after they've been saved by it. Brothers and sisters, this is how God is with me. This is how God is with you. He saved you before you ever deserved it, before you ever sought it out, before you even thought to seek it out, while you were running from him. And you will never be able to appreciate it enough. You just won't. You'll never be able to appreciate it enough. And, you'll, and you still don't deserve it. And you're never going to deserve it. And that's just the way it is. That's why it's grace. Grace is by definition not deserved. If you think that you deserve it, it's not a gift anymore. You've now worked. And God does not like works for salvation. Grace is a gift despite your sin in the face of it in the midst of your sin. Um, when I was in middle school, I was not a very good student, okay? This was like seventh grade, I think. And my mom told me that if I got a C on my next report card, then I was going to be grounded. Grounded and grounded in my house meant no TV, no N64, nothing TV related, screen related, which was really sad. Because when my next report card came out, lo and behold, I got a C and a D. <laughs> now, if my mom were to be just in this situation, what would I get? I would get six weeks, no TV, no N64, no Mario Kart 64, until my next report card came out and I could redeem myself. But let's say that my mom gave me mercy. And I'm going to kind of arbitrarily divide mercy and grace just for the sake of the illustration. But what would it look like if my mom decided to give me a little bit of mercy? Maybe she would say, well, Willie, how about this? I'll give you three weeks, no TV, no N64. And what would I say? Thank you. That's great. This is much better than six weeks. And I'd be very, I'd be very appreciative of her mercy. But what if she showed me grace? All right. Some of y'all are going to get mad in a second. Okay. So I show her this failing report card that I deserve because I missed the mark. What would grace look like in this situation? What would be an undeserved gift a gra- the grace in the midst of my failing and wrongdoing. Well, for middle school, Willie Cody, this would have looked like, this is what grace would have looked like. My mom saying to me, hey, first of all, Willie, you know what? Forget that six-week punishment. It's gone. In fact, let's go to Toys R Us right now. And you've been talking about that GoldenEye N64 game for, let's go get that for you because you, it's all you've been talking about the past several weeks. And then on the way home, let's, talk, let's stop by Taco Bell and let's get some four-alarm double-decker tacos. My mouth is already burning thinking, I wish they'd bring those back. Um, that would be grace in the midst of my sin and failure, her lavishing on me gifts. Isn't that crazy? I bet a lot of the parents are very worried right now. <laughs> Here. But God does not give us video games and tacos, right? Well, he kind of does. Like, all good gifts are from above, right? But he gives us better he gives us better. In the midst of our sin and rebellion and abandoning him, he gives us the forgiveness of our sins. He gives us union with Christ. He gives us eternal life, eternal full life. He transforms us to be less and like the will I used to be and more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. What a great, amazing blessing and gift. 
These are all undeserved blessings for sinners who just trust him. They just trust him. This is how God is with people who run from him to idols. This is how he treats people with grace. Have you experienced this grace? I think one of the, well, one of the clearest marks that you have experienced this grace is when you, that you experience this grace when you did not deserve it, right? Is that you extend this grace to others who don't deserve it. You've learned a new move from God that doesn't exist in this world naturally, naturally, and it's changed your heart. Jesus says, for example, to his people, us, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, look at how countercultural, counterworldly this is. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. What he's saying there is you're going to become, you know, children become like their fathers. You're going to become like your father who forgives evil and loves evil people. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and uh, the just and unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do, you, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is saying, loving your friends, hating your enemies, boring. That's basic. <laughs> That's the same old boring way the world is working and has always worked, and it's stupid. God loves his enemies. He gives them good things. He gave you good things when you were his enemy. He turned toward you in love when you were his enemy. And this is what God's people do to their enemies. God's people are people who have been loved, shown grace when they were enemies, and they want to love, show grace to their enemies now. This is a true mark of someone who has been met by this amazing God. So, the Lord's commitment is relentless, point one. His grace is undeserved, point two. And our last point, his rescue is assured. I'm gonna add something, it's always surprising. His rescue is assured and it's always surprising. Look with me in verse 15. I'm just gonna read the rest of this text and explain a little bit as we go. So God raises up Ahud, right? And there's Eglon, he's the king of Moab and he's defeated Israel. And what do the people do? They cry out to God. We know salvation is coming, but what's that going to look, what's that gonna look like in this situation? Um, verse 15. The Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ahad, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, when it says that Ahad is a left-handed man, it literally says that he is disabled in his right hand. And this could mean that he's just simply left-handed, but there's a lot of clues heavy clues in this text that there's more going on, that he's somehow disabled and physically weak. And Ahud is not doing a very desirable job here. He's probably got this job because he's not threatening when he goes and visits Eglon. Like, you don't want some big strapping dude like me walking in there, right? Eglon's going to get all scared. So he sends the, send the weak person in there. So it was his job to bring tribute to Eglon. This could have been gold or silver. It could have been just crops. Uh, that Eglon demanded as their overlord. And Ahud had had enough of this idol worshiping. He had had enough of subjugation to Eglon. So verse, verse 16, 
Ahad, Ahad made a, for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he went and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So Ahad does something really interesting. He goes home, he makes his own DIY sword, and the sword is like, a cubit's like from here to here. So it's pretty long, and he straps it to his right thigh, and, that, and there's no crossbar on this thing, right? So it's just like there. You can't see it unless you're maybe feeling his leg. And it was about, that, you know, it was about this long, and he straps it onto his, his leg. And then verse 17. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ahud, it's going to come in handy later. When Ahud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, the king, commanded silence in his court. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ahud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ahud said, I have a message from God for you. And Eglon arose from his seat. So Ahud comes to present tribute to Eglon with his entourage there. And it seems like he didn't tell anybody about his plans. Nobody knows what's going on. But when he gets there, for whatever reason, he doesn't follow through with the plan there. Maybe he just came to scout it out, scout out the situation. Maybe just things didn't come together in the moment that he didn't have an opportunity. So he presents the tribute. He starts heading home. But then all of a sudden, I don't know if his nerves came back or he was just, this is all part of the plan. But he turns around and goes back to Eglon's palace. And he tells, and he tells Eglon, hey, I have a message for you, O king. And what's interesting here is that the king orders all the guards and all the attendants to leave. This is a big clue that Ahud was disabled because he is absolutely not seen as a threat by anybody. They leave him alone with the king. The, 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 subjugated, of the you know, subjugated people, one of theirs is alone with the king. So they left the king all alone with this guy. Never entered their minds what was about to happen. So he's alone with the king and he tells Eglon, I have a message from God for you. It's like a Steven Seagal movie. So Eglon starts to stand up and then um, Ahud takes the sword all of a sudden, in the verse 21, Ahud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt, that's what the handle is called, the hilt also went in after the blade, and he keeps pushing it in until the fat closed over the blade and disappeared inside of Eglon's big body. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. <laughs> then Ahud went out into the porch, closed the door of the roof chamber behind him, and locked him. So as Eglon is starting to stand to receive this message, he thinks it's from this local deity that's going to come give him some good news or something. And it's like slow-mo. The way the writer does this passage is so cool. It's like slow motion. Ahab draws the sword and pushes the whole thing into his body and down, apparently, until the sword disappears completely inside of his body. Then apparently what happened, and I thoroughly researched this, all right, was the tip of the sword went through his body and out between his legs. And his... This is what one writer said. His anal sphincter exploded and the dung came out. This is God's word, okay? Um, so there's an explosion in that room all by himself. And Ahud makes his escape. And it's kind of like unclear in the Hebrew with this word for porch what it is. It seems like maybe, because you don't lock a door from the outside usually, the inside. It seems like he escaped through the sewer system somehow, like Shawshank Redemption style. He made his way out of this cool roof chamber on the roof. And then verse 24, Ahaz escaped. 
And when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, because he's dead, they took the key and opened them. And they lay, there lay their Lord dead on the floor. So the guards come back, but the door's locked. And they think they can smell what's going on in there. They don't know what's going on. They smell. They assume that he's going number two. And they wait and they wait and they wait outside. And notice again, even at this point, no one ever suspected. Even at this point, no one after this weird, like they don't, they don't even suspect that Ahad could have possibly done anything. They thought he brought his word and left and everything was okay. And while these knuckleheads are standing around smelling the king's dung and going like, yeah, you go in. No, I'm not going in. You go in. You can just imagine the scene. It's supposed to be funny. The Bible is funny. Ahud is running as fast as he can while they're standing around. Ahud's running, booking it as fast as he can to Ephraim. He blows a horn when he gets to, the, to, the, to this Ephraimites. They all come running and he, he tells them this rousing speech. We get a snippet of in verse 28. He says, follow after me for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they follow him. And they rout these Moabites. 10,000 Moabites they killed. And they were free from Eglon and from anybody else for 80 years between him and the next judge, Shamgar, with his ox code. Here's the salient, important point for this sermon. Okay? This is, this is the modus operandi for how God works. This is the way that God works. He promises salvation. You know his commitment. You know he's gracious. Then he brings it about in a way that you would never expect. But you can be sure it's coming. His salvation is assured for you, for us. No one expected Ahud. Not the king, not his attendants, not even his own people expected this. Every one of these stories from, in Judges, from here on out, it's going to get weird. It's going to get very macabre, <laughs> if you don't know what's coming. Um, but when the people trust him, no matter what seems to be going on in their lives... They're saved. For example, in Genesis chapter 3.15, right after the fall, God promises in chapter 3, verse 15, that he would send someone, someone, someone to, to crush the power of the serpent, of the Satan, of Satan over humanity. How would he fill that out? No one knew. No one knew. They just trusted him and they were saved. God heard the groanings of his people in Egypt and promised to save them. No one knew how he was going to do it. They were, had no idea the roller coaster they were in for with the 10 plagues, with crossing the Red Sea. They just trusted him and they were saved. <clears throat> no one knew, no one understood in this moment, no one ever considered the possibility that Ahud, this weak, disabled person, could overthrow a whole nation by stabbing their king till he pooped everywhere. <laughs> but when the people heard from Ahud what he had done, they trusted him and followed him, and they were saved. God saved them through this weak guy. Now listen, if your fundamental is that God is relentlessly committed and gracious, then what that means, that's your fundamental. That means that at the worst, darkest, most confusing time in your life, and in the most content times of your life, I can be sure that at the end of the day, there is a rescue. I don't understand what God's doing right now. This is kind of weird and crazy and it hurts, but I know whatever it is, God is committed to me and he's gracious to me. I know it. And if you've trusted in this God, if you are his people, then no matter what is going on, 
even if it is death itself that you are about to enter into, even that is a salvation for you. Death only brings us to be with our God and Father, right? Beyond this text that we're talking about here with Ahab, how can you know? How can you know that this God is trustworthy? Well, 3,000 years or so after these events of Ahud and Othniel, there were people standing around this cross that a naked Jewish man was nailed to. And he was dying this torturous death in this unwanted corner of the Roman Empire. Like Ahud, he appeared so weak. He appeared so helpless. What could God do through this? And the people wondered, this man who healed so many, this man who redeemed, promised to redeem the world, he, he said he was saving people from their sins. Here he is dying this shameful death. How is this going to save anybody? How could any good come from this? And at that moment, no one knew. But God's salvation is always surprising, and it's always assured. Because what's ironic is that in the darkest hour of history, that, that hour, God was working salvation for you and I in, the, in the, his son's death on the cross. That moment was the pinnacle of God's commitment and grace to us. All this rebellion that we've, that we've committed, all this abandonment that we're guilty of, God's son paid the punishment for it, for us, so that he could have us once and for all. You know, his death on the cross, there's two things about it, and then we'll finish. His death is an example of how bleak and dark and hopeless and confusing life can be in the moment, but you can trust that his salvation is coming. It happened there. Second, it's not only an example, Jesus' death, it's also the reason. His death is the reason that we can trust the salvation is coming. He is so committed to a faithless world that God sent his only son to die for them in their place. That whoever believes in him should not perish, not die, but have eternal abundant life. The writer of Judges wants for you and me to know that God is relentlessly committed to you. That his grace is based on his commitment, not yours. And that you will almost never, you're never going to understand in the moment when the confusion, sadness, terrible things are happening, you're not going to understand. And you're not going to understand in the moment. That's why he gave us the story. So we can know that he is committed and faithful and loves us. And we can just trust and rest in him and obey him. That's what the writer of Judges wants. CPC, this week, whatever happens, the writer of Judges wants you to remember that God is committed to you. He is gracious to you. And your rescue, your salvation is coming. It's all founded in what he has done and what he is doing. Let's rest in him this week. Will you pray with me? Father, will you open our eyes to the places in the Bible that we just read and in our own experience that prove that you are faithful, that you are gracious, and that our assurance is, uh, our salvation is assured. And would you make that lead us to trusting you and obeying you and putting sin to death and running away from idols and to you and to your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name.